0: Chapter 16 of Homecraft Rugs, Their Historic Background, Romance of Stitchery, and Method of Making by Lydia LeBaron Walker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joanne Turner. Felt Floor Covering History and tradition unite in accrediting felt with being the first floor covering of a textile nature made by the Aborigines. From the time of its invention to the present, it has continued to be used in the Far East for rugs. Its value has been recognized in the Western continent, where, since the time of its commercial manufacture, it has been more or less used for carpet surrounds, linings, druggets, etc., and for some minor rugs. In the field of handmade floor coverings, it held a merely nominal place until a recent vogue for felt, coincident with the renaissance of rug craft, brought about a renewal of its use in a wide variety of ways. Felt rugs are very quickly made, since they are of a fabric already suited to floor coverings. They are effective decoratively and durable, provided the felt is correctly selected as to process of making and weight of goods. The material never frays, and therefore raw edges can be left without any protective finish whatsoever. Colors can be found to suit any scheme of a room, or to correspond with any necessities of pattern, as the scope and scale of the shades available are almost unlimited. The rugs can be developed in smooth-faced or pile surfaces, and be ornamented with stitchery, patchwork applique, etc or the felt can be cut in strips and be used as a flat, working medium or for pile strands. But before taking up the actual making of felt rugs, it is wise to know something of the nature of the fabric, what it is, how made, the difference between true and woven felt, etc., in order to select the felt wisely and use it to the best advantage. The name felt is identical with the process of construction for it is made by the matting down or felting of fibers that have a tendency to curl or that have what is known as a scale structure which means an inherent waviness and inclination to fray at the tips the original method of making felt was to strew the ground beneath a tent or inside a cave or whatever the habitation was with strands of hair, chiefly from the camel and goat, with fur, with particles of wool, or with fibers having the felting qualities mentioned. A thin layer was spread at first, and gradually more, when this was trodden underfoot, until it matted together securely, but not worn so smooth that no more particles would adhere. Eventually the ground was carpeted with a textile impervious to water, Soft to the tread and flexible until its thickness prevented. Felt rugs are made in Persia today by pounding the particles instead of treading on them. Occasionally, a solution of rapeseed oil and water is sprinkled on the goods, then more particles and more pounding. In India, the process of making felt rugs sounds more advanced. The particles are strewn on a mat of rushes bound together with thin cords. This chapar is then rolled and pressed by the feet of natives for hours, during which the rolling and unrolling is continual. At last, the felt is taken out and moistened with soapy water. Then it is stretched on the chedar, until somewhat drier, when patches of colored particles are put on, following some pattern, and the whole goes through the pressing and rolling process again. The finer kinds of felt so made are cut with a mowing knife to make all surfaces even. It is this sort that is used for carpets. Sometimes a rug is made of two pieces sewed together. The thickness of these felts varies from three quarters inch to 3 inches. It will be seen by these accounts that it is quite within the bounds of possibility for anyone to make the textile of a felt mat as well as to ornament it. No one, however, in this age would consider doing so unless in dire need of a floor covering when cut off from access to stores, yet being where wool shearings were plentiful. Then the primitive method could be used successfully. Such a necessity and such circumstances might present themselves in some camp or mining district. There is a myth, chimerical but entirely inaccurate that accounts for the origin of felt. Once a monk, footsore during a long hot journey through a sheep grazing country, picked up a tiny tuft of wool and stuffed it into the heel of his shoe. This eased the chafing, and repeatedly when needed he put more wool particles into his shoe. When reaching his destination, he found to his amazement that the pressure combined with the moisture had made the particles firmly adhere to one another to form felt, a new fabric. It is strange that any credence should be given such a tale, for long before shoes were made, even of the crudest sort, felt was an old product. In fact, it is probable that felt was used for the making of some of the earliest footwear just as it was used for outer garments, hats, armor, covers for tents, rugs, etc. Today, the manufacturing of felt is shorn of all picturesque elements, but many practical ones are introduced to add durability, such as crossing the filmy sheets of particles in opposite directions in the process of building up the fabric under moist pressure in true felt also called fiber felt. In impregnated felt, other agents are actually added, giving name to the product, such as iron impregnated felt, etc. When weaving is part of the manufacture, the textile is technically known as thread structure felt, to distinguish it from true felt. Both of these felts are used in rug craft. The advantage of woven or thread structure felt for floor coverings is that it better withstands the grinding pressure of boot heels. Both it and true felt grow stronger under steady pounding or direct weight, but neither can well outlast a rotary or frictional pressure, the true felt least of all. It must be remembered that in the Orient rugs were never expected to have such hard usage. They were and continue to be stepped upon with bare or sandaled feet only. In modern homes, rugs have severe tests, for they must keep their beauty under the shuffling of stout shoes, the weight of furniture, and the constant shifting of chairs. The desirability of using woven felt is, therefore, apparent, particularly when handsome embroidered felt rugs of the Oriental sort are made. Two drawbacks immediately present themselves, however. One is the cost of this felt, and the other is that it comes in but few colors. Both may be overcome. Woven felt is used in paper factories, and sometimes may be purchased when discarded and at trifling cost. When cleansed and in good condition, it serves the purpose of foundations excellently, the lightweight woven felts can be bought in white and dyed to order, or in the family dye pot. Notwithstanding the advantages quoted in woven felt, the fact remains that true felt is the kind commonly used in rug craft. It is easy to get, comes in a wide range of colors, and costs little. In truth, the rugs cost nothing except the foundation material if discarded felt hats and other felt articles are cut into motifs and employed for decorative appliqué. Thrift suggests this method as practical, without interfering with the beauty of the rug. A high grade of either woven or true felt is not essential to rug craft. The matter of importance is that the foundation felt be thick and substantial. The lightweight woven felts are not unlike heavy flannel or old-time ladies' cloth, a variety of broadcloth that is not so rich. Billiard cloth is the highest grade of woven felt, not very heavy, but very expensive. No one would consider using such a costly fabric unless some good pieces were found in an old billiard table cover. Light or medium-weight felts should be chosen for applique, while heavy felts should form foundations. These should be at least one-quarter inch thick. They are not difficult to procure, for true and woven felts are regularly made in extra heavy weights, up to one, two, and even three inches of thickness. Felt rugs that are embroidered hold highest rank. The inspiration for these is found in the Numda rugs from India, in which the embroidery has the charm of antique Persian and Indian stitchery. The genuine Numda rugs were imported from the Orient about the year 1924. Previous to that time, as far as has been found, the only felt rugs imported were unornamented and in flat tones chiefly gray, white, and buff, with occasional small ones in black. The main use for the larger rugs was to go over handsome carpets in dining rooms and living rooms, and for chamber rugs. Domestic printed felt rugs were also used for under-the-table druggets in dining rooms and in other main rooms. This protective use is quite different from that prevalent in the Orient where the felt is never laid over carpets, but under choice rugs, to soften the tread on them and to form a neutral background to further enhance the exquisite nature of these handmade floor coverings. Travelers who have lived in the Far East recommend this use of felt in other parts of the world, for they realize the deterioration that results from using fine rugs on bare floors. Fortunately, felt rugs call for no such protection, as it is pressure against a firm foundation that aids the continued felting process of the fabric. If the grinding, rotary, and frictional pressure could be eliminated, felt rugs would wear like iron. Although the name of India is always given to numda rugs, patterns on them are distinctly Persian in graceful vine, leaf, and floral designs in which birds are frequently introduced. The tree of life is a favorite. Borders are conspicuous by their absence. Edges are scraggy and so uneven that the shape of a rug sometimes resembles that of a tiger's skin shorn of claws and head. The edges dwindle to nothing while centers of rugs are thick. The size of a numda rug is never large, at least those imported to the United States. Neither are the rugs as small as doormats, more nearly approximating good-sized hearth or large prayer rugs. The embroidery is invariably in chain stitch. From this consideration of genuine numda rugs, it is easy to realize what are the requisites for Western homecraft replicas. The felt, preferably woven, though not necessarily so, should be heavy, and in the rough, pebbly finish. White, gray, and black are the colors always available in extra heavy weights, and buff, maybe. All these colors are correct, but it is unwise to select black, for in felt this hue is not a fast color. If the color runs, it will ruin the beauty of the colored stitchery, and much depends on the choice of colors for the embroidery. They must suit the type of design and have the tones peculiar to Oriental stitchery, as found in rugs, cashmere shawls, etc. Shapes may be rectangular many of the Numda rugs for foreign export are now so made or they may approximate the contours of those already referred to, thereby gaining an added Oriental influence. The edges may be made rough and irregular by tearing the felt apart after it has been moistened, giving a finish which might be termed decal edge. A coarse metal comb may be used to aid in tapering the textile and to further roughen the edges, or the edges may be slashed every quarter inch to the depth of two or two and one-half inches for a coarse short fringe. The cost of foundation felt, which in this style of rug is the chief expense, can be decidedly diminished if, when buying it, calculation is made for two or three rugs, the width of the felt measuring off into at least two rug lengths, in which case a comparatively small quantity is needed. If the width is divided into three rug portions, one length of goods will make three rugs, all of which may be different in decoration. If a tree of life pattern is chosen, it can be copied crudely from another numda rug or from any oriental rug of such design. It is well to remember that all trees in historic ornament, however conventionalized when used in stitchery, are forms of the tree of life. The kind to select for the chain stitch embroidery of numda rugs should not actually be conventionalized, but have some naturalistic trend, according to Persian art. Do not attempt to make an elaborate design, nor be afraid of its being crude. Numda rugs are crude themselves. If preferred, bold floral designs may be transferred to the felt and be worked in the chain stitch. The open flowers, leaves, and buds should be joined by gracefully curving lines to indicate stems even though there is no actual semblance of plant or vine in the pattern. These stems are not only effective in the stitch, but are typically Persian. The floral and foliage motifs should be arranged artistically on the felt, but need have no preconceived pattern design. For the stitchery, use a very coarse cruel needle, or, if the felt is very thick, use a fur needle. This is triangular and cuts the goods easily, instead of resisting it as a round needle does. Wool yarn of the tapestry or cruel variety is right for the embroidery. The latter is better and comes in fine shades for oriental stitchery. It is not necessary to have a coarse medium, for chain stitch makes a curved double line and therefore broadens the outlines worked. By examining the rug pictured, which is a genuine Indian numda, it will be discovered that some of the motifs are filled in by series of rows of chain stitching. This particular rug was selected for illustration because of its adaptability to home craft rugs. It also is typical of the colors used in foundation and embroidery yarns. The felt rugs that come next in rank to these embroidered in numda style are developed in applique, commonly called patchwork. These have been described in the latter part of the chapter, old patchwork for new rugs. One essential to be stressed, apart from the artistic element that must exist if the rugs are to be worthwhile, is the choice of a grade of felt for the foundation that will have weight enough to lie flat and remain firmly set on the floor. It may be added that the Numda style of ornamentation can be carried out by substituting applique for the larger motifs and using chain stitch for stem work, which, in this case, should be heavy enough to correspond with the more substantial motifs. As applique was often used in old embroideries to simplify work, it is consistent to use it in these rugs though they cannot be expected to have the same handsome character as when done in chain stitch. Mosaic rugs can also be developed excellently in felt, as was suggested in the chapter entitled Fabric Mosaic. In short, felt can be used to good advantage in all rug work, in which a non-fraying textile is desirable, since the edges do not have to be finished in any way. Felt strip rugs are usual, but unless the strips are of heavyweight felt, they offer insufficient body for good floor coverings. These rugs are made precisely, as is the simplified weaving taught in schools. To ensure evenness, the warp strips should be thumbtacked to a board or to a hooked rug frame, each strand touching those next it. The weft of shorter length strips is interlaced through this warp. Any artistry that can be instilled into these mats comes through color combinations. If the first and last four warp strips, or more if the rug is sizable, are of black or some dark color and an equal number of similar weft strips are woven at the beginning and end of the mat, a border effect is gained. Corners will be squares in flat color while in distances between, the shades of the field strips will appear in the border in checkerboard regularity. All the strips should be of the same width, the warp strips being in color throughout the field. These may all be one-tone and match the weft, making a one-tone field throughout, or the weft strands may be in contrast to the warp, supplying a checkerboard field. A heterogeneous array of colors in the field is inartistic. Fancy weaves may be introduced inconspicuously by skipping two strands when weaving and so arranging the spacing in consecutive rows that a diagonal pattern results. Not more than two strands should be skipped, and these should never come over the same warp strands in consecutive rows, for this weakens the rug. These felt-woven rugs have a narrow fringe along all sides. It is made by leaving about three inches of warp and weft unwoven. To secure the edges firmly, a cross-stitch to match the strands, or in contrast to them, is made in the center of each checkerboard square around the rug. Similar stitches may be put in each square or on special colored squares only. Black or yellow is a favorite hue for this stitchery. Tips of strands may be cut in fishtails or left straight. To cut the former, double each strand and snip a short diagonal sliver from center to tip. Unfold and the fishtail shape results. Variety can be afforded these rugs when they have self-toned centers or are in two tones or colors only cut flat flowers from felt and scatter them over the rug field singly, or in twos and threes. An occasional green felt leaf will provide diversity to the gay blossoms. A touch of artistry can thus be instilled into these rugs. When the shades of the rug accord with the color scheme of a room, the rug fits well into the decoration. An entirely different style of rug is found in those made with a pile. In these, owing to the width of pile strands, it is not easy to carry out patterns, though design is a pronounced trait in other pile rugs. A neutral field made by clever distribution of hit-or-miss colors with a border in solid dark tone can be pleasing, or colors in the field can be in masses harmoniously contrasting. These may be separated by narrow lines of black, like the lead in stained-glass windows. Felt pile rugs are among the most thrifty of all floor coverings, for in them any scrap of felt as big as 1 inch by 3 eighths inch can be employed. Use ticking for a foundation, and sew each bit of felt, cut this size onto it, by doubling through the center and securing with a few well-set stitches. Use the strips as gauge lines to ensure evenness of pile. A simpler method, that is not strictly craftsmanlike, is to sew the bits to the foundation by machine. Put the ticking under the feed and place the crosswise center of each strip on one of the ticking lines, following either the blue or the white stripe down the entire length of the rug. No basting is necessary, for each bit of felt can be held close to the one last sewed, having its position always as described. Fold the felt ends back over the stitching when sewing the second and each successive row, so that the stripe of the ticking is bared for the stitching. Rows should be about three-eighths inch apart, so that the pile will stand up well. One entirely handmade felt pile rug so fashioned has stood the test of 75 years of constant wear and is still in perfect condition. Each year it grows more attractive as the colors take the tones that time alone can supply. One type of pen wiper rug has a curious pile, best developed in felt, although any woolen bits may be used preferably those that do not fray easily. It is the only rug that well deserves its descriptive name, although, as has been found in the chapter on patchwork applique rugs, others are so-called, or miscalled. In this pile penwiper rug, the formation is precisely that of some penwipers, and a section of the rug could be removed, and be transformed into pen wipers at any time. There are two ways of making the rug from the same unit formation, which is merely a small circle. Since a coin, a spool, or button makes a correct pattern, the rug would come under such a classification were it not of such entirely different type. The pattern mold is the only thing in common, and this is comparatively small, one inch in diameter being a good size for the circle, a quarter or shilling is the right proportion, or a spool for a silk or forty cotton. Any wisp of woolen goods from which even a single circle an inch wide can be cut can go into the making of the pile penwiper rug, here again ticking, with stripes spaced so that they form gauges on which to sew the circles, should be used for a foundation or any firm fabric with lines so spaced. The simplest method of constructing the mats is to fold each circle twice through the center, making a segment one quarter the size of the circle. Sew so each segment to the foundation by two or three stitches taken through the point center, of the segment and the foundation textile some rug makers sew through the folded segment and then allow the folds to open as they will while other workers prefer not to fold the circle but to take the stitches directly through the center of the flat circle in the latter instance the edges of the circle are caught with the fingers and thumb and drawn upright after being stitched in place without any attempt at regular folding in this method of construction the pile forms wee tufts, with the edges of circles all of an even height. Each tuft must be sewed sufficiently close to the preceding one to make the edges remain upright, supplying a firm, even, and substantial pile. Rows should be so spaced that the distance between them is equal to that between tufts in the row, for so only will the tufts be equally distant from each other. These penwiper rugs with tufted pile are the earliest type. The hit-or-miss pattern prevailed, although it is quite within the range of the construction to include interesting designs, as will be seen from the account of the second method of making the rugs. In each method, pattern is similarly introduced. The second method of making these quaint rugs gives a corded appearance to the pile surface that is distinctly different from the tufted pile. Fold each circle as described, i.e., through the center, to form a half circle, and then this half circle through the center to get the quarter segment. String these segments together through the double-folded edge, having one stout thread come near the center tip, and one near the outer or circumference edge. If the rug is small in size, these two stout threads may be the length or the width of the rug, according to the direction given the corded effect. When rugs are long, the danger of having long threads break is eliminated by using shorter ones. When this is the case, the break in the cord of segments must be overcome by joining the segments at the end of one and the beginning of another string. Do this sewing after the two strings have been positioned on the foundation. It is necessary in making the corded penwiper rug to have the stripes in the ticking or other firm striped foundation so spaced that distances between stripes measure one half inch or whatever the half diameter of the circles may be. Otherwise, the stripes are of little value as gauges. To sew the strings of segments to the foundation, take a stitch through the tip of each segment first. Then, run the needle between the fold last made in the circle and catch the two thicknesses of cloth to the foundation with a stitch or two near the circumference edge. The thread will make a long stitch between the folds, while two short ones will be taken at both the tip and near the edge. Segments are sewed consecutively onto the foundation. The thickness of the fabrics from which they are cut determines their spacing. In heavy cloth, one segment will occupy about one-half inch in width, as well as in length, but if the textile is thin, two at least will be required to make the width equal the length. Each row of segments must just touch the other to keep the undulating corded appearance. If they are closer, the pile pushes up and resembles the tufted pile. It is essential to keep the rows geometrically straight and precise, for unless the rows are perfectly parallel, the beauty of the rug is impaired. By having the foundation marked off as in ticking, it is not at all difficult to keep this symmetry. This very precision is an aid in making patterned penwiper rugs in corded or tufted style. When each segment occupies the space of a square, as it is likely to in either style, the copying of cross-stitch patterns is as easy as if the work were on canvas. Filet and beadwork patterns can be copied with equal facility. Geometric patterns found in weaving in knot-tied and smooth-faced rugs can be done by counted stitches. These patterns will be greatly enlarged owing to the size of the tufts. Hooked rug patterns can be used, although there is a freedom of technique permissible in them that must now be transposed into precision. The tufted pile lends itself more readily to design than does the corded pile, for each tuft is sewed in place separately. Thus, for instance, a pattern may be drawn on a foundation and tuft sewed on, regardless of the row formation, but following the design and then the background filled in. When the cord pile is used, the segments must be strung in sequence and rows numbered, each row corresponding to a line of fillet, cross stitch, or weave. It is advisable to sew corded strips onto the foundation as they are completed when designs are carried out. It is then a simple matter to correct any fault in the stringing of colors, and the work can be kept true. A width of border should be sewed on first, and each row be begun and ended with a corresponding width of the same color. An equal width of border must be sewed on to complete the surround. The segments will naturally spread sufficiently to fall over the edges of a foundation. The one exception to this may be in the final row in the cord pile. To avoid any discrepancies, omit the thread near the circumference in this row and catch each alternate segment to the edge of the rug foundation, which has previously been turned in. As the stitches come through the foundation and may wear unless protected, these rugs should be lined. Denim is recommended. It is strong and good-looking. These pen-wiper rugs in either style are easy to make and vie with the strip-pile rugs in thrift. The rugs wear well and, as has been seen, may be as ornamental as a hooked rug and as attractive in pattern as a cross-stitch or needle-point floor covering. They are soft to the tread and therefore are delightful for bedroom floors. When carried out in rich tones, they are equally appropriate for the main rooms of an informally decorated house, a cottage, or farmhouse, though especially well-suited to old-fashioned homes. Surprising diversity can be instilled into felt rugs, whether smooth-faced or pile. While some of them described can be developed in other materials, all of them are seen to advantage when felt is the medium. End of chapter 16